Well, Merry Christmas, if I don't see you before Christmas Day. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody that's online with us as well. So glad that you're joining us today. Christmas for me is one of my favorite times of year. It absolutely is. Um, I, I love Christmas. And one of my favorite Christmas movies to watch is the movie A Christmas Story. You might have heard of it. I absolutely love it. And if you haven't seen it, uh, it was basically made in the 80s, set in the 50s, uh, and is a great case study of what the Western Canadian child's Christmas was like back in the day. It's one scene after another of disillusionment and disenchantment that often comes at Christmas. And it's really funny. But perhaps the, the best part of this, uh, this whole movie is, is when Ralphie finally gets his hands on the official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. This line is, absolutely, is repeated over 30 times in the film, along with Mum's warning, you'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> and what happens? Excited to finally get it, Ralphie races outside on Christmas morning, sets, him up, sets up some targets, gets his rifle out, and with his first shot, it ricochets back into his glasses, shattering them. Mum was right. And disillusioned, Ralphie drops the rifle, runs back inside, hurt, and afraid. Maybe Christmas for you is a lot like Ralphie's this year. Maybe not with rifles, but maybe it's a lot like Ralphie's where you are feeling a little hurt and afraid, a little disillusioned. You thought Christmas was going to be the best Christmas ever, only for a tragedy to strike or fights to break out. And at the end of the day, you feel a little disillusioned with this whole Christmas thing. And we wonder, What's this whole Christmas thing about, really, anyways? We ask, you know, do we really need Christmas in our life? Maybe we begin to deconstruct whether Christmas even has any merit anymore. I mean, after all, Pastor Andrew, it feels pretty exclusive. It's this whole Christmas thing, like people pushing Christmas on me here and there, who might wish to celebrate. You know, somebody might want to celebrate something else, right? Right? And perhaps, maybe, just maybe, we might even walk away from this whole Christmas thing altogether. Maybe this whole Christmas thing is better if we just leave Christ out of it altogether. Happy holidays, bah humbug, I'll see you in the spring. And the passage this morning that we're going to be going to in a second is another story of disillusionment. And this time it's with God's word. And it's not the shortest passage that we're going to read today. So I thought we would do something creative. And Pastor Chris said yes. So we're going to do something creative this morning. I, we had a lot of fun in first service. And, uh, and I hope that you'll have fun with me as well. We are going to do a responsive reading. And so what that is, is that you as a congregation and you online, wherever you might be, will be reading out loud the crowd parts of this passage. And then I'll be reading out the parts uh, of Jesus's uh, lines. And so basically, we're going to go back and forth. This passage is a conversation that Jesus is having with the crowds. And so my hope is that as we read together, we will also kind of get a feel and kind of internalize the struggle between the crowd and what Jesus is saying. And we'll get sort of that idea of what that conversation felt like back when it was happening with Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand if you're in the building, for the reading of God's word. 
And we're reading out of John chapter 6, verses 25 to 69. So there's a lot. But, but you'll do it. I know. You'll do great. And so you, you guys will have a slide that will say congregation. And then there will be another slide that will say pastor. I'll read the pastor slides. You guys will read the, uh, the congregation slides. And you guys are up first. Now there's some hesitancy this morning. So I will count you in. Just to make sure we're all in unison together, all right? We don't want that one person like, I'm going to start. And then everybody has to catch up. All right, so here we go. You guys are up first. One, two, three. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on, him the God, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, 
which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Do you want to leave as well? Jesus asked the twelve. Great reading, everybody. Let's just pray before we, we sit. God, we just come before you with your word. God, this is a hard passage. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to us today. But God, I pray today that those that might be feeling a little disillusioned, a little disenchanted by, by things that are happening in their life, God, I pray that the, this text would resonate in their heart. God, I pray that this text would be encouragement to them. And God, I pray today that as, um, as, as we speak and as we meditate and think about your, your word and this passage, I pray that, that we would receive something new that we can take with us into the Christmas season. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Let me give you a bit of context as to what's happening in this, uh, this passage and, and around this passage, around this time uh, during Jesus' ministry. Because this passage is a little unique and a little bit weird, right? Let's just say how it is. Um, this story happens the following after, following after um, two of Jesus' most famous miracles. You might have heard of them. This happens right after the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. Jesus feeds the 5,000, taking five small barley loaves, two small fish that a boy offers, and providing the entire crowd enough food for all of them to eat and then having leftovers. It is the best Christmas dinner. And after performing this miracle, the people were actually going to make, forcibly make Jesus their king. I don't know how you forcibly make somebody a king, you tie them up and throw them on, put them on a throne, but they were going to do however that worked for them. And as the disciple, and, and so because of this, Jesus then retreats. He retreats up a mountain, he sends the crowd away, and he sends the disciples 
into a boat where they go to row and uh, over the Sea of Galilee. And as the disciples were rowing in the dark that night, Jesus appears to them walking on water. He gets into the boat, and then they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You can just kind of, if you've got your Bible, you can just turn a couple pages back and read the whole story if you'd like. But in the morning, so the next morning, the crowd wakes up. And they go and expect to find Jesus where he was, and Jesus isn't there. And so they actually, I'm thinking run, but they actually travel around the Sea of Galilee and, and find him in Capernaum, teaching in a synagogue. And so that's where this passage picks up. Jesus is at a synagogue. It's the next morning. He just fed 5,000 people with a, f- a few loaves of bread and, and fish. And then he just revealed himself to the disciples, walking on water, really cool stories, and now it's the next day. And this morning, we're actually going to be looking at the three questions that the crowd asked Jesus um, and meditating on those about how, if we're feeling a little disillusioned about those questions and how Jesus responds to those questions. These are three questions that I actually believe are relevant for today and for us as well. And the first question is this, that the the crowd asked Jesus. The first question is a question of materialism. Sweaty, frustrated, tired, probably a little hangry. They ask Jesus when they find him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And knowing that the people's true intentions, Jesus makes a statement in verse 26 saying, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures. The people could not actually lift their minds above the physical necessities of life. So they had not seen or maybe perhaps cared to see Jesus' true nature and divinity in their midst. And though the people said, give us bread, I think what they really meant was, give us what we want so that we can then be on our way. And the people saw Jesus the way they wanted to see Jesus. See, some saw him as the man they grew up with. Others were ready to make him king of Israel forcibly, and some simply wanted more food. I mean, they did run around a lake. But our main response to Jesus should be to seek his presence, not his presence. I know that's super cheesy, but it's okay, it's Christmas. Our main response to Jesus should be to seek his presence over everything else. It isn't to become a Christian so that I can have a great life, or I can have power, or I can get the experiences to feel the tinglys on a Sunday morning. And if I don't feel the tinglys on a Sunday morning, then I guess the sermon or I guess the worship was a little off. It's not to seek blessings for our life. It is simply to be in relationship with Jesus who gives us eternal life. And the people were looking for Jesus because of the things that they could gain from him not for the relationship, not to be in relationship with him. And it wasn't about a true relationship. It was about taking advantage of that relationship. So let me ask you, how do you seek Jesus? Is it with an agenda or is it with adoration? Because if I'm honest with myself, my prayer life looks a whole lot like seeking things over seeking his presence. 
some prayers are actually quite noble to pray and to request. And we are told to bring our requests to God. But if all we're doing is bringing requests to God, the question is, are we willing to actually put in the time and the effort and the energy and the cost to just learn in the process and be with Jesus? If all we're doing is seeking a response that we want from Jesus, then that actually looks like an abusive relationship. If all we do is want things from something, someone or, or from Jesus, but we never actually want to spend time with Jesus, that's actually an abusive relationship. Which leads us to the second question that they ask. So, okay, Jesus, like, okay, not bread today. Well, okay. Well, what else, what else can you teach us? And so the second question is this question of self-sufficiency. So after receiving the first correction from Jesus, the crowd then asks, what must we do to do the works God requires of us? And Jesus responds to the crowd by saying, the work of God is this. Here's your answer, by the way. If you've ever wanted an answer from Jesus, he's very clear. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. But see, to the Jewish questioners of Jesus' day, that didn't, it didn't make sense to them. They were having a hard time with this. Because obtaining eternal life in their mind was, consisted of finding this right formula or equation to get there. You know, if, if I just live a better life, then, you know, if, if all of my good outweighs all of my bad, and I live a good life, then I'll get to heaven, right? Or, if, or for them, it's if, you know, uh, if X and plus Y times 7 equals eternal life, then let's do it. And they wanted to know, how do, how, does, how do things line up? How do things work so that I can get to heaven? And nothing that you can do can earn your way to heaven. And actually nothing that you can do will actually earn a right to receive something from Jesus. There is nothing that you can do. It isn't like, I, well, Jesus, I went on a missions trip last year, so now I get that Cadillac, right? Like, you're just going to bless me with something. Like, well, Jesus, like, I, I, I served Pastor Andrew in youth ministry for a whole six months. It was torture. So there must be a big blessing in my future, right? By the way, youth ministry is not torturous. <laughs> but... I just wasn't going to throw another minister under, under the bus. <laughs> it isn't like that. Instead, it's simply about the relationship. And out of that outflow of relationship is what should be our, our motivating factors to serve or to, to go on mission or, or, to, or to, to reach out to someone or a neighbor. It should be out of the outflow of our relationship. It shouldn't be, I'm going to do this so that I can live a good life. Or I'm going to do this so that I make my pastor proud of me. Like all of that doesn't matter in the end. Simply relationship with Jesus. So what the people were truly asking Jesus was, Lord, just show me the plan. That would be great, right? Lord, just show me the plan so I can get there myself. So we all strive to be self-sufficient. And I don't think we have one teenager here today. I don't think I have one teenager in our youth group that their life goal is to live in their parents' basement for the rest of their life. And I don't think I have one parent, it, 
that has a life goal of having their kid live in their basement for the rest of their life. We all strive to be self-sufficient. But the challenge is that our self-sufficiency can actually get in the way of Christ's intimacy. So one of the great challenges Erica and I, my wife and I, have in our marriage is actually this. It's actually our self-sufficiency. So we're highly independent people. We got married later uh, when we already have full careers and social lives, and we run very, very busy schedules. And it's actually really easy for us to go days, sometimes weeks, without having conversations that run any deeper than what's for dinner or what are you up to tomorrow. But I would expect that I'm not alone in this. I know how busy so many of you are. And so if Erica and I are not intentional and held accountable to these things, our self-sufficiency will actually rob the intimacy in our marriage. And the same is true with Jesus. See, if we structure and fill our lives with chores and hobbies and personal priorities and our kids' priorities and Instagram and then the endless scrolling of Facebook Marketplace for that perfect chair that we're only going to sell in six months because it doesn't quite fit, it's okay, there will always be another chair to buy, I promise you. We actually rob our relationship with Christ of its intimacy. But what if we actually structured and filled our life the other way with Christ first? And in the outflow of that intimacy, we actually allow our schedules to get filled. It's because none of the other stuff is necessarily bad or wrong. It's just what priorities we have and how is that outflow ha- affecting our life. I'd rather put Christ first and let the outflow dictate what my life looks like. Which leads us to the third question that they ask. It's a question of spiritual fulfillment. So the people ask a final question to Jesus, and it's interesting that we're only at verse 30 in this passage when they ask it. They ask, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? And Jesus responds with a shocking answer. He declares that I am the bread of life. You have seen me, and still you do not believe. So this response was actually so shocking for them that the crowd no longer asks Jesus any questions. We get halfway through this passage, and now the crowd is off doing their thing, and Jesus is trying to explain to the crowd more things. Instead, they begin to grumble and argue and murmur amongst themselves. And why do they do this? Because this response immediately forced the people to make a choice about who Jesus was. Was Jesus just the Jewish kid from down the street, or was he the one and holy God? And for most that day, this choice was just too hard to make. But the ones that were closest to Jesus responded differently. See, the disciples saw Jesus, the 12 disciples saw Jesus' divinity, while the crowd only saw Jesus' humanity. So the crowd replied, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Isn't this the, like, neighbor's kid whose father and mother we know how can we now how can he now say i came down from heaven we grew up with this guy (laughs) but the 12 replied lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. See, Jesus claimed to be the only permanent satisfaction for human desire for life. And Jesus actually claimed six times in this entire passage to have actually come from heaven, just like the manna during the Israelite exodus. So Jesus was actually delegated by God the Father to have life, to give life, to secure life, and to restore life. And manna, or bread, in this case, was only a temporary solution to a broken system. But Jesus was the permanent reset. And yet the same group of people who just received the bread from the miracle the previous day, when Jesus fed 5,000, are demanding Jesus for something new and forgetting about what he just did. See, the crowd missed this truth because at the heart of it, I think, that they actually wanted, they just wanted Jesus to be agreeable for them. Husbands, do me a favor. Turn to your wife and just say to your wife, can you just be agreeable? And if your life doesn't flash before your eyes when you do that, you're either blessed or already dead. <laughs> but don't we do this all the time with Jesus, with, with God, in our prayer life, in our devotion life? We do this all the time. We say, Lord, just be agreeable so I don't have to yield. Just be agreeable for once. And as soon as Jesus doesn't become agreeable for us, in some way, we become bitter or disillusioned and are tempted to just walk away from it all. Our memories fail us real quickly. And all of the blessings that we've received, and we angrily demand for another sign from our Savior. And just like the crowd, we become so fixated on the next thing that Jesus can give us that we actually miss what God has already done and provided. And so as we conclude today and the worship team returns, I wanted to cycle back to Jesus' question to the disciples. See, I think Jesus' question to the disciples is the same one that I believe he's asking us today, whether you're online or in person. So when you become disillusioned by the way of Jesus, will you leave him too? That's the question I want to wrestle with. So when life blindsides you, when you disagree with something in the kingdom value, or will you say, I choose to leave or I choose to remain? Will you give in to the murmurs and the grumbles and the anger of this world, or will you echo the response of Peter, who says, to whom will I go? I've come to believe and to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Because the thing with Jesus is that belief in Christ forces a choice in our life. And how we respond to Jesus in the midst of our disillusionments and our disenchantment relies heavily on how we choose to see Jesus. So we can say, oh, this is just too hard. I just can't anymore, Jesus. And we can walk away or we can say, I have come to believe and I have come to know. I cannot walk away. Where would I go? And I wish I could tell you that putting your life and your faith in Christ will make your life just this blissful, peaceful, perfect, splendid life. But the honest answer is it probably won't. But it will force you to continually choose 
who you allow to master your life. Will it be your kids, your credit card, your spouse, Facebook Marketplace, or Jesus? Jesus says this another way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And although he's talking about money, I think we could kind of just fill in the blank here. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or status, or kids, or Facebook Marketplace. Pastor Andrew has a problem, I think. Like, this is a hard teaching, I understand, and it's a hard and difficult concept to wrap their minds around, especially when Jesus gets weird at the end of that passage. But in the midst of your disillusionment, and in the midst of all of your woes of Christmas, I want to just encourage you to continue to choose Christ. Let this be an encouragement to build your Christmas and your life around Christ. Don't give up on Christ this Christmas. Give in to Christ. Because he's here today. He's ready to take your struggle. And honestly, sometimes the most honest prayers that we pray are the ones we are filled with anger and we're filled with frustration and we're filled with pain and we just simply yell at Jesus for a bit. And that's okay. He's not going to smite you. He's going to listen to you. He hears you. And he invites you in. And he's here asking you today, will you leave him or will you remain in him? And so just as we, as we close and conclude, I simply just wanted to pray for those of you who might be feeling a little disillusioned, a little disenchanted.